Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The National Security Podcast is taking a short break for the holidays, so we're revisiting some of our most popular episodes from 2023. From all of us at the ANU National Security College, happy holidays. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Gay Brotman, Distinguished Advisor with the ANU National Security College. Today's podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. Today, I'm joined by an esteemed panel, Dr. Emily Corner, Lydia Khalil, and Professor Michelle Grossman. Emily is a senior lecturer of criminology at the ANU and has worked extensively on projects examining terrorism, radicalisation, and the mental disorders associated with terrorist behaviour. Lydia is a research fellow on transnational challenges at the Lowy Institute and manages the Digital Threats to Democracy project. She has a broad range of policy, research and private sector experience that focuses on the intersection between governance, technology and security. And Michelle is a renowned expert in the areas of violent extremism, radicalisation and community engagement. And her work has been instrumental in shaping policy and practice in these fields, both in Australia and internationally. So if I can just start by asking each of the panellists, how has violent extremism evolved over the last decade? If I could start with you, Emily. Um, So I think a lot of the research I focus on is on the sort of growth of what people turn the lone actor. So a lot more individualized level of violent extremism. It's moved away from centralized group structures, especially in the last 10 years. And uh, there's not only been a lot of interest in sort of the political space about lone actors, but there's also been a growth of of the kinds of um, individuals. And along with that, what you have is now a sort of a blurring of ideology. So Mm. the ideology is less politically sort of rounded as it was and it's now so some countries are now sort of terming things as mixed unstable or unclear ideologies and in Australia there's sort of a a recognition that some of these individuals may pose a security threat and be should be labeled as violent extremism but some individuals may pose a different kind of threat but also like automatically get lumped because they're acting alone um so the, that's the kind of stuff I've seen in my research is that it fundamentally what is political has changed and is that because of the way the political systems of the world have shifted to the right and maybe we've seen a move away from people understanding what political means. So what was political 10 years ago in terms of right, left, centrist is not the same as it was anymore. Right is much further to the right, left mm. is much further to the left and mm. centrist is sort of disappeared yes yeah, polarization it has so and that's reflected in the violent extremism that we see and um, that's it you know it really has when you have a political system you can attach yourself to it quite easily but when the political system shifts and it no longer fits what your ideology was you may sort of move to lash out in a slightly different way so is it strictly securitization that you you're preaching against or is it not that that's the kind of shifts that we've seen due to the polarisation in the political systems. Okay, thanks. And Lydia, your thoughts? Well, in addition to Emily's excellent points about decentralisation and lone actor, I think that the biggest shift has been in terms of where the threat is coming from, right? So in the past years, it was coming from the global war on terrors. We had the 9-11 decade. We were very much focused on external threats and the manifestation of those external threats in our domestic sphere, right? So the homegrown thing, but essentially coming from a movement and an ideology that sat very much outside of our political, cultural, historical context in terms of jihadism, right? So before it was taking 
taking a look at the externalities. Now we're much more focused, not that that threat has completely disappeared, but we're much more concerned about what is brewing up internally from our own political and cultural context. So um, it's movements that are, I think, bucking up against what is happening internally within our own societies. And that's, that, that, that's a big shift, not only for the security agencies in terms of how to handle them, what to securitize, what to not securitize, mm -hmm. but also um, in terms of how society conceptualizes that, right? Because um, in the past, you very likely did not know anyone who was radicalized or belonged to an extremist movement or what would be considered a violent extremist movement. Nowadays, you very well might. Um, because there are violent extremists that are coming out of anti-government movements, conspiracy movements, various right-wing manifestations, ethnic and racial supremacist movements, and those are much more integrated into the mainstream. So I see that as the biggest shift in what we've been seeing in the extremist and terrorist landscape. And has that been exacerbated by COVID? I would say so. I mean, a lot of us that have been taking a look at these issues have really... Um, uh, observe the impact that that pandemic has had in terms of people's uh, sense of security and stability, their own psychosocial needs in terms of how that manifests into extremism and violent extremism, in terms of their perceptions of government and government's role in society and how they feel comfortable with that. Um, not to say that the COVID pandemic is particularly unique. We've seen historically how various crises and big events like that have brought up these conflagrations or exacerbated some of these type of things. But certainly COVID um, has played a big role in terms of the types of extremism and violent extremism we're seeing nowadays. And hastening it? That's a big question. I'm not quite sure where I'd say I'd land on that in terms of um, accelerating or hastening particular dynamics, but it certainly has brought up newer movements and has brought in a different cohort of folks involved into these movements. So again, in past movements, Terrorism and extremism was a young person's game. Nowadays, you're seeing people who are well into retirement, you know, people you would think would be uh, aged out or opted out of affiliation with some of these ideas and movements, you know, retirees, middle-aged folks with families and stuff being involved in these anti-government and conspiratorial movements. Um, so it's a, it's a different cohort of folks, and mm. that's another big change. And Michelle? Yeah, I think that Lydia and Emily have already covered this um, beautifully. But I guess I guess the question is really making me think about David Rappaport's um, wave theory of terrorism. So, you know, Rappaport talked um, about the anarchist wave uh, characterized the late uh, 19th into the early 20th century. This was followed by the big anti-colonial wave, then the Marxist or the new left wave. And finally, at the point at which he was doing this work, he was talking about the religious wave, which he says started around 1979, mm. continuing into the present. And I think what this reminds us of, if you take that slightly longer view around the evolution uh, of terrorism and violent extremism, for a long time, Time, people thought about terrorism and violent extremism as being linked effectively to insurgencies or to political dissidents, yeah, to some form of political resistance, mobilization, seeking transformation and change. And I think we continue to see the emphasis on seeking transformation or change. But if you actually look at what's changed, say, in the last five to ten years, I think there are a couple of really salient things. Um, one is that a lot of the old assumptions about the religious in religiously motivated violent extremism, which, um, you know, for two decades have been associated almost exclusively, um, um, you know, with the, the targeting of, of Islam and of Muslim communities, that has now shifted, and it's shifted in some very definitive ways, but it's also shifted in terms of um, questions that are being asked around the salience of religion altogether. The next thing is, um, and I think Emily brought this out um, really beautifully, um, the the increasing emphasis on trying to understand, and it was also there in Lydia's comments, around the nature of grievances. And it's, it's mm. not only about the content of those grievances, it's about their scale, it's about their distribution, and it's about their intersection. So we are now seeing um, a, a, a series of what you might call intersecting or interlocking ideologies, whether you call them mixed and unclear or unstable, or whether you actually start to you know, see them in terms of a matrix, I think our whole analytical framework 
of how these things do and don't fit together um, has really shifted. And the final um, signal change for me, and this is, boy, this is a big one, um, it, is the, it is the simultaneous emergence of extremisms, plural, mm. yeah, alongside more traditional ideas and movements connected to terrorism and violent extremism. So the blurring of lines that Emily mentioned before, I think we're particularly seeing this now at the point at which the vectors of nonviolent extremism, which itself can pose, may or may not pose, a range of social harms and community harms and violent extremism, it's the vectors um, of those two movements that are now coming together in some surprising and very challenging ways. So I just want to pick up on some of the themes that you've just discussed in terms of those extreme elements, that polarisation, Emily, in terms of that decentralisation, the broadening out, uh, Lydia, and also Michelle, that intersection of different groups. So can you just give some examples of what that looks like in Australia and uh, today particularly? Yeah. So I think... The best example, mainly because it's in Canberra and Canberrans experienced it, was the Freedom Brigade when they sort of came to Canberra in the guise of anti-government, um, sort of a, an anti-government movement against COVID sort of guidelines and, and lockdowns and, and things. So just prior to the Freedom Brigade arriving, there was an influx of um, people on the far right, the Proud Boys, who were coming in around the same locations and trying to sort of recruit people to the to the far right and also to the, the movement. And then when you had the, the people come from Australia into Canberra, you actually had a lot of the more extreme um, conspiratorial elements who were coming up, standing on stage and talking about some QAnon sort of ideologies really and it what was happening was the people that were there for the premise of the against vaccines actually started pulling on a lot of the same like tangents that you see in QAnon a lot of the same tangents you see that the proud boys espouse on the far right so that's a really clear example of when ideology isn't clear and it's it's really started to become a blend and a mix so yeah that's the example I can I can give Lydia Sure. One of the um, extremist manifestations we're seeing in Australia right now that's connected with the freedom movement and the conspiratorial movement, but is also a separate thing on its own, is the sovereign citizen movement. So the sovereign citizen movement was uh, indigenous to the United States, for lack of a better term. It started there. It came through a particular contract, context of the United States. But it's been very interesting to see, speaking of the impact of the pandemic, how much that that movement has started to infiltrate other countries, particularly in Australia, in Europe, New Zealand, Canada, um, and intersecting with those movements that um, Emily has mentioned. But the language of the sovereign citizen movement mm -hmm. um, in also uh, showing up a lot in those other movements and people responding to the pandemic restrictions to become more enmeshed into the sovereign citizen movement in Australia. So it's a very interesting example of transnationalization of extremism mm. um, of a different context than we were used to seeing. So when we, in the past, we would talk about transnationalization of, of extremism. Again, we'd think of, you know, Islamic jihadist movements and that kind of thing. But here's an example coming out of the Western context where we're seeing that transnationalization and its growth in Australia. And again, we're, the, we're talking the last five years, recent history. Michelle? I think the example that I would give um, actually comes from my home state of Victoria. Um, and that is a, a relatively recent movement that's developed called My Place. So My Place is almost the opposite of what Lydia has just been outlining um, because it, it presents itself as a, as a highly localised movement. Um, so My Place is a group of people who have um, increasingly um, uh, set about disrupting local council meetings, um, um, in, in, in very aggressive ways to the, and, and actually what they're in, in so doing, what they're actually doing is disrupting local democracy. Yeah. So you've got you've got um, local government as the, the, the third or, or bottom tier um, uh, of the three tiers of government in Australia. You now have local council meetings um, and local councils that have had to go online 
to hold open council meetings because the, the threats um, uh, and fears for the safety and well-being of councillors and other people who show up to those meetings has really, really been challenged. But at the same time, you also see the intersection within the My Place movement. There are clear elements of conspiratorial th thinking um, and, and viewpoints around things like 5G, um, around the, the concept of the 15-minute city, which is apparently a plot to you know, keep us all penned in like sheep. Um, you see um, the intersection, um, it, it certainly in public statements that have been made by the founder of the My Place um, movement with um, anti, you know, with with Holocaust uh, uh, doubting or denial. So there are all these threads and strands of narrative, of ideas, of beliefs um, that seem to congeal or gel in some way. Um, at the same time, people in those movements actually see themselves as pro-social, um, as a vanguard. They feel as if they have um, possession of an insider truth uh, or some specialized knowledge, um, you know, that it is their duty to try to share with the broader populace. So the motivations, the self-perception, and the impacts of some of these mixed, you know, unclear, ideologically unclear movements, I think we have yet to see how they're going to play out. Um, and we have yet to see what their impacts are. But the one one clear impact in relation to that My Place example um, is that it is actually an assault on democratic Democracy. process. Yeah. It is an assault on democratic process. And um, it, it has always struck me as a huge irony that the people who are crying loudest about freedom, freedom, freedom are actually busy disrupting the freedoms of others um, through disrupting democratic process, which is about exactly that. Yeah trying to shut it down so that my place movement is that you've mentioned it's it's alive and well in victoria is it have you are there any signs that it's spreading um into look, other as far states? as as far as i know not yet um but let's let's see as far as i know not what lydia is lydia yeah, so it's starting to um, become present in other states, particularly in New South Wales and in ACT as well. But mm. Michelle's certainly correct that it was born and bred in Victoria and has the biggest presence there. And was it were the particular councils uh, targeted? Was it an inner city council? Uh, were they inner city councils? Were they suburban councils? Were they country councils? All yeah. of the above? All of the above. But the really interesting thing is, is that usually the quote-unquote inner city councils that tended to be more progressive um, have actually been um, dealing with disruptions to local councils for quite a number of years already. But they never really hit the mainstream's attention as the no. My Place is doing it now. But you had disruptions from, uh, um, you know, the predecessors to um, the, the neo-Nazi movements that we have today, like the Lad Society, the True Blue Crew, things like that, that they would disrupt local councils in the kind of the mid, the late 2000s, the mid 2010s. Um, but now the local council disruptions are getting to be m much more frequent and coming from these. So in a sense, these inner city councils were used to it and know how to deal with it. But now you're you're they're targeting councils that are in suburban, peri-urban areas, areas, rural areas who are really unaccustomed to dealing with those um, type of dynamics. And it's interesting to reflect on why they're targeting local councils, because it is the most accessible form of of government, right, of, of democracy. Very difficult to kind of storm into federal parliament and, and do these antics, or even in, in state, state. Par mm. parliaments as well. Mm. Whereas, you know, local government is really the, at the forefront of our democratic participation and the access is there, and so it's an opportunity. Mm. Michelle? I would just add to that um, that it is also the best way to mobilize and influence local people, ordinary people, local people on the ground. So um, doing the kinds of things that my place does, taking up the issues that they take, the, the, it's, it's, not, it's about the physical access um, to local government that Lydia has outlined, but it's also about the social access that, that ordinary people have um, uh, connected to local issues that they might feel strongly about. But the other point that I wanted to make is that in discussing some of these examples that we've just been looking at, I think it's important to recognize that the kinds of movements that we're now thinking about, I would see as adjacent 
to violent extremism, but I would not see them as violent extremist movements themselves. So they're posing some challenges to how we think about the category of violent extremism, but they are not violent extremists, certainly not in their current manifestations. And it raises some really difficult, I think, and challenging issues for how elastic um, we are allowing our terminology to be, for how elastic we're allowing our ideas to be. One of my real worries, and I know that a number of other people in our field, um, you know, share this concern as well, is that if we keep bundling um, um, all sorts of countercultural or dissident or protest movements, um, you know, into the violent extremism stroke terrorism bag, um, there's no end in sight. And this can result in some very uncomfortable and potentially um, uh, abuse-oriented scenarios by the state um, to simply shut down ideas and movements and things that they don't particularly like. So I think I think that we, we can look at the clear risks to democracy that we see mm. uh, from some of these, but there are other risks to democracy in how we choose to respond as a society to such movements. And that, for me, is the pointy end uh, of where these contemporary dynamics are taking us. So can I just ask all of you, should we be more cautious in our language, the way that we use our language? Yeah, I definitely think we should, because at what point are you policing someone's beliefs? So a lot of traditionally conspiratorial belief systems have not been anywhere near included in radical belief systems. And they have coexisted for years. And there's always been elements of conspiracy within radical belief systems. And now what is happening is there's far more interest in the, the conspiratorial beliefs that we're seeing in radical belief systems. And I think there is a huge danger of shifting into a space where you're securitizing beliefs. And we know with conspiratorial beliefs, there's a really high prevalence of vulnerability in the people that are experiencing such beliefs. And then if you're capturing those people and, you know, you're potentially going to do harm for something that is not radical. And also, there are a lot of people in the world that have radical belief systems who would never, ever be violent at all. You know, so why are we trying to securitize their beliefs you know every one of us has some element where someone would go oh that's a bit radical for me you know but that doesn't mean that it should be securitized and it doesn't mean that it should be monitored by the government potentially so there is a huge risk as and that you can see this in data so as data expands and we we're searching for more and more data to try and understand the phenomenon of violent extremism you have a danger of capturing the wrong people that go into the data and then the outcomes are different right and as we do that we are at risk of capturing people that should never be in those data sets and those data sets ultimately the research influences government policy and then that comes back down so there is a huge risk as we are seeing more and more mixed unclear ideological belief systems in determining them as violent extremism when they should never be, mm -hmm. you know? So that's the huge problem, in, in my opinion, that we have. Huge problem. I think the question, the question of language is, is always important. Um, words matter. Um, the terminology that we use matters. Um, it's very difficult to get right. So I'm, you know, when I think about the, the um, deeply legitimate claims uh, by many um, in, in Muslim communities in Australia who said, you know, you're, you talk about Islamic extremism, but there's nothing, is, you know, or Islamic terrorism, but there's nothing Islamic mm -hmm. <laughs> about terrorism. And then it became Islamist, and then it became jihadist. And so, you know, we continue to, we continue to struggle, um, you know, to find terminology that does justice to the phenomena that we're trying to grasp hold of, uh, both conceptually and also in terms of how we respond, you know, in real real time and in real life. Um, uh, and at the same time, I think we also run up against um, what I would call understandable but regrettable um, impulses by government to find 
simpler ways of categorizing and uh, cutting and slicing and dicing what are actually complex, messy phenomena. So the language problem that we have, and, and I actually, sorry, if I could just add one more thing. I also think that we've seen over time that the language that we use um, can be subject to political influence by whatever the government of, of the day may happen to be and where that government sits. Mm -hmm. So I can remember a conversation um, a few years ago um, with s somebody from the United States who was a member of the United States government, and I mentioned something to do with far-right extremism, and they said, oh, no, we don't use that term <laughs> in the U.S. This was, this was post-Trump, I have to say. Oh. Uh, they said, oh, no, we don't use that term. You know, we, we, we talk about racially and ethnically motivated violence, and I said, you know, that's not the whole story uh, when you're looking at far-right extremism, and they said, well, you know, we see things differently. Um, so that was such a clear example. And then you sort of think, well, in terms of the transnational transnationalization uh, of extremism and terrorism, which occurs on multiple levels at multiple scales through, through multiple conduits, um, if we can't get our terminology at least in an intelligible enough form that you can sort of have that communication and understanding across mm. national boundaries where you have like-minded countries so. who are actually trying to develop, you know, policy and strategy um, and practice, this can become a real issue. Mm -hmm. So a more sophisticated, cautious, nuanced and agreed kind of lexicon. I would, I would, I know it's a big ask, but I would say so. <laughs> Lydia. I think that reflecting on the language is also important because it helps steer us in terms of which policy framework we're going to use. So if we're talking violent extremism, extremism, radicalization, you're associating them with particular movements, you're going to use the countering violent extremism toolbox, policy toolbox, to deal with these issues. If you talk about them in a different way, then there could be another policy framework and toolbox that you apply to them, such as democratic resilience or societal resilience or a whole host of other things. So I think it's to say that language is important because not everything fits within the countering violent extremism framework. And I'm finding that more and more we're trying to shove more into that, which contributes to mission creep, which is never a good idea. So being more nuanced in our language, in our definitions, in our conceptualizations of these dynamics and movements um, can help us identify different policy frameworks to deal with these really multifaceted and complex phenomenon. We'll be right back. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. In this disrupted world, Australia needs security professionals more than ever. Join the next generation studying at the ANU National Security College. Our programs uniquely fuse academic knowledge with practitioner experience and fit around your lifestyle with study offered online and on campus. Follow the link in the show notes for more information about programs and scholarships. The ANU National Security College. Engaging minds for a secure Australia. I think we could spend a whole podcast and perhaps four on uh, on just this issue alone, but we'll keep moving on if you don't mind. So I just want to move into what the the situation you've outlined: um, the multifaceted, uh, decentralised, polarised, intersectional. So why has this change occurred, uh, particularly in the last five years? I think that there's um, it's an intersection. I think of. Uh, individual dynamics that are, you know, occurring personally within in people, um, you know, the lack of psychosocial support and community and, you know, various psychosocial needs that contributes to this stuff. But um, one of the things that I've been focused more on my work is kind of the, the broader uh, societal dynamics at play 
that have impacted the changing landscape that we've seen. So one of them is certainly the democratic erosion, um, both within established democracies and geopolitically in that that context. That's been a factor. So people's trust in the democratic process and trust in democracy in terms of um, bringing good outcomes to their lives has certainly eroded. Mm. And there's actually some interesting contradictory um, dynamics at play here. On one hand, we've actually seen a step up in um, political participation and democratic participation in terms of social movements, protest movements, people becoming much more involved in, um, you know, in seeking change on a societal and political level, becoming more personally invested, at the same time, really declining levels of trust in representative government and um, confidence in representative elected officials to do something. So it's those kind of paradoxical dynamics around democratic erosion um, and Increased democratic participation. Yeah, sort of act, is it an activism or is it just engagement participation? Uh, yeah, I think both. I mean, one of the things that we we fail to realize if we're like looking at some of these you know extremist movements again, that's a, a loaded term, but they are social movements. You know, uh, at the end of the day, and social movements can take on many forms. So if you take a look at them through the dynamics of the. Um, the uh, establishment of social movements and what drives them, I think that helps us see some of the dynamics that are driving their increase. Um, certainly, you know, the rise in inequality on a global level, increased globalization and hypercapitalism has um, manifested great inequalities, um, and that's something that's driving uh, a lot of dissatisfaction in, in people's lives and, and a push toward, uh, you know, getting involved in into these movements and a push toward conspiratorial thinking. Mm. This idea that there's a kind of a global cabal, an elite that's driving these dynamics that's untouchable, that's unaccountable. Mm. Um, that's certainly one of these things. And, you know, paradoxically too, um, particularly driving uh, kind of e ethnic uh, supremacist movements, racial supremacist movements, far-right extremism, is concerns about the climate um, and climate change. Um, within those movements, they are linking the degradation of the environment to issues around immigration, reviving old blood and soil uh, frameworks that we thought were long dead in order to deal with the climate crisis and environmental degradation. So it's all of these kind of more broader societal uh, issues that we're all dealing with. But at the end of the day, we're all experiencing this, right? So mm -hmm. what is it that makes someone radical or extreme or prone to violence to address them than other people's? that kind of comes down to, the, again, looking at the individual level and those psychosocial needs. Michelle. So um, I just want to pick up on something that Lydia has talked about in terms of inequality, but the way that, that I would like to frame it is in relation to the dynamics of grief and of loss. So I think one of the consequences, when you, when you are living in a society um, like ours in Australia, that has created um, a certain bandwidth of expectations around how people are going to live, um, what they can expect in terms of their social and material and economic um, well-being. And then you look at the ways in which those expectations um, and those hopes are unable to be met and unable to be realized. It is the gap mm -hmm. between the, ex the horizon of expectation and the reality of being able to meet those expectations that fuels anxiety, uncertainty, concerns about law and anger and resentment, loss of status, loss of hope, right, that things are ever going to get better. So when I read, um, as we all do, um, lots of media coverage about an entire generation um, losing hope, um, you know, of home, for home ownership mm. in their lifetime, right? Now, that just sounds like an economic issue, but it's never just an economic issue. It's a social issue. Mm. It is an issue that can mobilize people to say, what is going wrong here? <laughs> mm. That's something that I have been, you know, led to led to believe and led to expect is going to be within my reach is suddenly not within my reach anymore. And this is happening at precisely the same time, uh, particularly driven by digital media mm. and digital influence, yes, yes, and, yes. Digi and digital uh, uh, and and digitally based influencers. People are being confronted with images of the most extraordinary wealth 
the most extraordinary privilege, right? So the gap just gets wider and wider. But everything, I agree with everything that Lydia said. What I'm trying to get at here is that it's not just an abstract um, equation. It's a felt experience. It's a lived experience, that gap. And that is where, um, if you are um, already an ideologically committed violent extremist, you are able, that's a, you can drive, you can make that wedge a lot bigger. Um, you can get in there, it provides fertile ground. And so that bends back then to the question of what our, our social responsibility is to understand the connection between our economic, material, social, um, uh, values-based uh, well-being in terms of, you know, democratic institutions. What is the relationship between all those things and people's capacity to radicalize to violence? Because there is a connection. It's not the connection that people used to make um, in a very oversimplified way between poverty, you know, yeah, can, yes. can breed. It's not. That's sort it's of not economic that. inequality. It's not that. And a, a huge amount of research, I think, has really um, blasted that out of the water and shown mm. um, that people from all different backgrounds, uh, you know, including very, very wealthy, very well-educated backgrounds. So it's not about it's not about structural disadvantage in and of itself, because if it were, we'd see a whole lot more people, right, radicalized to violence. But what it is about is the experience of the gap and the grief, the loss, the resentment, the fear Anger. and the rage. Yeah, right. That, that, so grief, loss, fear, resentment and rage become that, that kind of um, mix that can really set somebody on a pathway that we would not like to see them go down. Mm. Yeah, Emily. So to accommodate from sort of in the middle of both Michelle and Lydia. So terrorism has always evolved. It's always changed. And there's, a, there's an amazing graphic on the Global Terrorism Database website where you can see from the 1970s up until like 2015, the trends. You can you have the globe up there and you can see the trends and where things change. So it has always shifted. You know, in the 70s, we had a movement that started in the Europe that moved to the US about the far left and then we had a huge birth of nationalist movements and and then as we moved into the early 2000s there was a huge focus on the Middle East and fundamentally terrorist movements are social movements and they also are fantastic imitators so they see what works and then they do it themselves so this has always been the case in that they innovate, so, you know, they innovate in tactics and they innovate in ideologies, but they also imitate previous because once they see what happens and what works, they can do it. A really good example of this is um, runover attacks. They were called runover attacks when they started in Israel and Palestine. People would just grab a vehicle and drive their vehicle into a crowd of people. That, once it started to become known in the media, burst all over Europe huge amount of those kind of attacks because people were seeing what worked and they took it. The same can be said in terms of shifts in what violent extremism and terrorism is, is that they see that they learn what the ideology is for one movement and then they pull on strands and go, hang on, I agree with that. And then they start their own movement and move forward. And just like Lydia was talking about how the democratic system shapes it, and Michelle was talking about the individual system shapes. Mm. The social elements right in the middle, the social, individual social and social political elements really shape how terrorism shifts over time. And at the moment, everyone's online. We can all see what's working in terms of what ideologies are popular. And then they pull on that. Or maybe that resonates with someone. Maybe that resonates with all these other people. They see what's happening. The freedom movement started in Canada and then it came to Australia, and then it was in New Zealand, because people were seeing what was happening. And then they stay, and they maintain, and the ideology mutates over time. But fundamentally, terrorist groups learn from each other, and we've always seen that happen. So it's no surprise that we're at a point where, over the world, we have a fundamental shift into what we see as violent extremism today. Because not only do we have the anime at the individual level, and we have the shifts in the political systems, but we also have the people in the middle who are experiencing all of that and mm. the social ties that bind us all together and how we learn from people. Because as humans, 
the reason the we, the reason we get to where we are in life is because we learn from others. It's social learning theory. It's one of the most basic theories you can have. So it doesn't surprise me that we, as individuals, we learn from others. Terrorist groups do exactly the same thing. And as new things become popular and new things seem to work for those groups, and new ideologies come mm. forward, it resonates with people. And that's how we constantly have changes. So we've touched on the sort of the, the broader societal elements uh, in terms of the influences on these changes that have happened in a very short period of time. Uh, what role has social media played here? Lydia? Well, terrorism and other forms of political violence is inherently a communicative act. So there's been so much interesting scholarship around the role of media and how as media develops, uh, a lot of times terrorism has developed alongside of it. So, um, and, and how political and social movements have developed alongside of both media communications and technological innovations. So um, if we think back to the early days of Al-Qaeda, for example, in the 1990s, it grew up alongside of the cable news era where you would have, you know, Osama bin Laden videotape these VHS tapes, send them over to Al Jazeera, which would then become broadcast. So it, that movement grew up um, in the kind of the mass media cable news era. Our current um, extremists in, in some of our terrorist movements are emerging in our current media landscape, which is dominated by computer-mediated communications, right? So that technology has particular affordances that um, allow these movements to act in particular ways, develop in certain ways, communicate in, mm. in certain mm. ways. It's certainly made communication so much more easier, so much more accessible. Um, it's contributed to our awareness and perhaps the development of particular grievances and all of these emotions as well. So we're not just getting those feedbacks in terms of what's immediately happening in our local environment, but globally because yes. of technology. Mm. And to Emily's point about social networking and mm. the networking and the social aspects of these movements, that's aiding that um, as well and playing into those dynamics. But there's a particular online culture as well that's impacting mm. um, those movements. So, um, you know, the, the far-right extremism in particular has really grown up alongside online culture. And online culture and far-right culture has me melded in ways and influenced each other as ways, in, in those ways. And I think the, the last point I'd make about it too is, is that we've talked a lot about the role of conspiracies and disinformation and how it's uh, contributed to the development of those movements. None of these things are new, right? We've always had disinformation in any society, anywhere, no matter how uh, less technologically in, in advance past history to now. I think what's different is the scale. Yeah. So computer-mediated media communications allow these things to occur at scale, mm -hmm. and that's really the con the concerning thing that we're having a very difficult time um, grappling with. Just listening to um, what Lydia has had to say there um, has also reminded me of another dimension um, that I think may be at play here. When when you think about um, other other past forms. Uh, of, of violent extremism. So I'm thinking about some of the stuff that Emily was talking about, the old anarcho-left uh, you know, movements, fascist movements. Whatever else they were trying to do, they were, they were deeply committed to ideas and they were committed to texts and they were committed to learning. Mm. What you now see, and I think this is very connected with um, the, the conjunction that Lydia has identified um, of, of you know, far-right, new-right um, uh, uh, narratives and digital media, is the anti-intellectualism of this. So um, most, of this, most of the communication that you see on the various channels, it's done through memes, it's very image-based, mm. um, it's very short and snappy. So it's, it's, not, um, it's not about the study uh, of systems. It's not about the, um, the deep analysis as so many other previous sort of violent extremist terrorist movements have been. If anything, it's the opposite of that. And I think that that, that trend would not be possible without the kinds of affordances of social media um, that Lydia has, has just been talking about. And it's really interesting to see how that, that, that has played out. So given 
all we've discussed so far, what do you see as coming up in this space in the next few years and what challenges will governments and communities and individuals face in combating these threats, this new environment? So it's a really great question. Um, I think for me, I'm somebody who spends a lot of time thinking about how we prevent and counter violent extremism and what are the key elements that really go into our capacity um, to be able to do that in communities as well as through government and particularly through um, government and communities actually working together on these issues. And I think one of the really big things um, that is going to continue to come up over the next few years is how we think about and what we mean when we talk about community. Mm. So for a long time, um, you know, since the advent of 9-11 and the war on terror, community has been it, with community the meaning of community within um, the discourse of preventing and countering violent extremism has effectively been used as a proxy term for Muslim communities. Yeah, not exclusively, but largely. And I think one of the really big challenges now is, you know, and so we've had lots of policies and programs um, and platforms, all of which have been geared um, towards, um, you know, so where community resilience has become a kind of framework that really has been about, um, you know, the integration uh, of, of people who are seen to sit outside the mainstream. So as long as we understood terrorism and violent extremism as a minority phenomenon, mm. it had implications for the way in which we thought about and practiced community engagement and community resilience. Given all the things that we've been discussing this afternoon, where it is clear now that um, there are a range of risks and threats, and I think Emily may have more to say about some of the risks um, uh, that are coming from um, majority culture um, you know, points and sources, people who are part of the mainstream um, of Australian society. What does that mean in terms of how we understand and think about community resilience? So I think that's one big challenge. I think a related challenge is what we understand to mean by resilience um, to violent extremism. So resilience to violent extremism, which is a big part of the policy settings of a number uh, of countries, um, including Australia, um, you know, can mean different things. Sometimes it means, um, you know, prevention of violent extremism. Sometimes uh, community resilience uh, to violent extremism means resisting it. Sometimes it means recovering from it. The problem, and I mean, there are lot, there's lots of good things about community resilience, but I think the problem uh, can lie in what we understand that term to mean. So resilience is not just about being individually strong or being able to resist things or being able to withstand adversity. If you think about um, the social ecological model of resilience, what that will tell you, what all the, the, the good theory and the good research in that area will tell you, is that it is about being able to access and navigate your way towards meaningful resources that help you cope. Now, lots of Australians are really good at that already. But to navigate your way towards meaningful resources that can help you cope, those resources have to be there. Mm. And one of the really key challenges I think we're facing um, for so many years, countering violent extremism has been conducted in ways that have made assumptions about where terrorists come from in big cities. Um, it has relied on the infrastructure and resources um, and services that large urban capital cities can provide, what we're now seeing is a bit of a shift um, so that rural and regional communities, um, many of whom think violent extremism and terrorism are things that happen <laughs> somewhere else, <laughs> but not to them, that's changing a little bit. And there are a number of cases um, and a number of uh, violent extremist actors um, who derive from rural and regional backgrounds and, and, and where recruitment is taking place in rural and regional areas. So the question becomes, how are those areas resourced? What are their capabilities? What are their needs? Um, and and uh, what can we do to expand our 
um, our lens and our line of sight so that we're no longer just thinking along the old grooves of metropolitan, um, uh, you know, the, the, the metropolitan bias, I would call it, in the way that we think about preventing and countering violent extremism. Mm-hmm. Emily? Um, so in terms of, like, looking forward, I think the one thing that we may continue to see is this meshing of ideological ideas and like the the what is radical versus what is conspiratorial versus what is just you know purely ideological and what that does is present a huge challenge to agencies who are trying to identify the people at risk um so as we said before just because you hold such belief systems doesn't necessarily mean you're at risk of conducting violent extremism and governments should really only be interested in those at high risk of conducting violence because other than that, it's just a belief system. And where governments are going to have to catch up is in how they identify risk. Mm -hmm. And also risk of what? What are you trying to prevent? So fundamentally, are you trying to prevent radical beliefs or are you trying to prevent violence? Are you trying to prevent people gathering in groups? Are you trying to prevent democratic resistance? What are you trying to prevent? And when you think about risk, risk of what is the first question you have to ask? So the way that governments are moving to is reassessing what they have in place for assessing risk. So I'm doing a number of different projects with different governments about what is their risk and are their current protocols fit for purpose? Mm. Because that's constantly going to change. So the governments and and the agencies are now requesting frameworks that they can constantly change and shift and depending on what their cohort is and also so they can evaluate themselves and they can evaluate how they're managing their risk and how they're changing their protocols to fit the environment. So there are places that are actively recognizing that we need to shift what we're doing in prevention at the individual level. So risk at the individual level, not the community level that that Michelle was talking about. That's a whole different kind of risk. But at the individual level, we need to understand who are the people that we're trying to prevent from becoming violent, because that's really what we should be interested in. And I think it's really positive to see the agencies who are willing to make these shifts and willing to assess their own practice and to continually keep assessing their practice. Um, But that's just starting to happen. So I think it's only going to become more and more prevalent as... It's a culture shift in those agencies. It's a huge culture shift. It's It's a shift away from preventing the bad guy, right? When When you hear the word terrorist, you automatically in your head picture someone who is evil or or whatever and it's a it's a about a mindset shift in that quite often there's fundamentally problematic systems that are in place that's put a person Mm. in that situation where they are at the point where they commit violence most of the time these people have gone through so many different experiences in their life and all the things that both michelle and lydia were talking about before in terms of structural strains and individual strains and that's what's led them there. And agencies f- like know that. And it's about removing that idea in society of what terrorism risk is and actually looking at the people and why they're doing it. And I think if you shift away from risk and more towards looking at what is putting this person in this situation and how can we help their situation, that's going to that's gonna progress us forward. So, Emily, are you thinking there that we need more of a shift towards um, assessing vulnerability? Yes. Uh, So that's a very loaded point because they've tried to do that in the UK and they've eventually moved away from it. But a lot of these people in it, sorry to go on, a lot of these people who are looking at these mixed unclear ideologies, there's a lot of vulnerabilities there. There's a lot of social harms that are happening to them. There's a lot of psychological vulnerabilities. And those are the people where we need to be assessing vulnerability and we need to be managing that. And I think there is a danger in just language shift towards managing vulnerability instead of managing risk. I think there's a huge danger of really moving away from securitization, which is harmful in a way. And we don't want to go too far in that sense. Yes. Lydia. So 
national security has been pretty much the purview of national state governments. And if I'm looking at things going forward, I think that for me, that's going to be the big shift going forward because we always talk about a whole of society approach to these yep. things. Yep. But more and more, particularly if we're talking about technological developments, government will have less levers to deal with the situation. So if we're talking about the impacts of social media and technology, for example, mm -hmm. who owns and controls these platforms? It's not government. Government has been unwilling or incapable or there are complications around legislation and regulation of these platforms. And so therefore, the levers of power are sitting outside of government. So when we're thinking about countering violent extremist programs or ways to deal with these issues, we really are seeing a shift toward government not being the sole or the main actor primarily mm. around this. Even in areas where government can control in terms of intervention programs, putting the resources into particular areas that Michelle has mentioned, because of the dynamics of these uh, movements that we're seeing now, which are anti-government, which are conspiratorial, those are going to be less effective. And so again, we're going to have to be looking outside government more in terms of addressing these problems, perhaps towards civil society. Now, there's always been cooperation between civil society and government. Government talks a good game about, you know, sharing responsibility <laughs> and doing all of that kind of stuff. But now I think it's really going to have to walk the walk in terms of developing its countering violent extremist uh, programs going forward and recognizing that it's not the sole holder of all the cards. Um, and in fact, it's going to have to rely um, on, on other sectors and in other yes. areas. Um, that's not to dimi diminish government, obviously, because, you know, they hold the budgets, they hold the guns, they, you know, they have the constitutional and political uh, legitimacy and mandate to do all of these things. But it's just a recognition that going forward, it's going to be much more decentralized. Um, and the other thing I think about, too, in the future, again, has to do with the developments around technology. So we've seen just the rapid shift in our cultures and societies, just in terms of the, the changes we've seen around com computer-mediated communications, what's going to happen when, uh, you know, when we start to see more technological innovations around the development of artificial intelligence? We've already seen how generative AI is um, impacting things, um, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. And so, what are those? What are those changes going to? Um, have on society and how are they going to play into not just extremism but the broader broader dynamics um, of, of what we're going to face into the future. Mm -hmm. Michelle. I just want to add one more thing here in terms of what we might see going forward and um, I don't know whether I would call this a risk or a threat or both um, but it's got to do with the broader scale normalization and legitimation of violence um, in democratic societies in ways that I don't think that we have seen before. So, you know, we were, we're talking at the very top end, right, of organized, you know, or semi-organized, ideologically driven, um, you know, goal-oriented violence, yeah, which is effectively what political violence is. But sitting beneath that are other social trends, um, you know, if you think about the um, the upsurge in recent years in violence against health professionals in hospitals, for example, mm -hmm. um, you know, security cameras and new protocols now in supermarkets. So there's been a kind of percolating or bubbling away of a sort of permissibility around abuse around ev what I would call everyday social violence. Yeah. Everyday abusiveness, um, everyday um, permission to sort of vent, to be angry, um, you know, to blame somebody, you know, to scapegoat here uh, and there. And I think that we ignore that lower level, sort of more chronic shift that we're seeing towards what um, the norms are around social behaviors that are considered acceptable. We ignore the correlates between that and what happens at that top pointy end mm. um, in terms of violent extremist social movements at our peril. And that really takes us back to the point that Lydia was making. There is no way 
of policing ourselves <laughs> or securitizing ourselves out of that, right? That is a much broader social issue, and it's something that um, that that is it so far exceeds the security space, but it has a relationship to the security space. And I'm not sure we're quite there yet in making that connection, but I think going forward we're going to be compelled um, you know, to look at those intersections as well and think about how we might best respond to that. Mm. Emily, uh, Lydia and Michelle, there's a, a lot of strong messages there to government, to the private sector, to civil society, to communities in general and also to individuals. Uh, there's a lot of food for thought there for public policy leaders and shapers and makers. So um, thank you so much for what's been a fascinating conversation and I would love to have a lot, lot more time. Um, so it would be great to get you back to tease out the many, many issues that we've discussed today. Thank you so much and um, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you.